Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1021. Hey, New York. I'm going to be at Caroline's on Broadway, October 345. So go to carolines.com for tickets. And hey, what do you know? That's the same weekend as New York Comic Con. So go do Comic Con stuff during the day and then come to the show at night. Uh, I'll sign a pop if you have one, even if it's not mine. I'll sign anyone's pop. I don't care. I'll do it. So uh, bring it. Come say hi. And uh, hope to see you there, carolines.com again. And now let's talk about you, the ID10T community, uh, on the ID10T community corkboard events at ID10T.com. Like Stephanie Jessup, who writes, For your geeky board gaming listeners, uh, I run a YouTube channel called Dibs on Blue, where I do board game tutorials and playthroughs in American Sign Language, but the videos are also voiced for hearing people. Board gaming is becoming more and more accessible to all types of gamers. I'd love to get the word out, and Dibs on Blue uh, is there, so more people can benefit from the channel and get into board gaming. Excellent work, Stephanie Jessup. Uh, Also, Devo Carpenter writes, You're always encouraging folks to do a thing, so I did a thing. Well done. A puppet talk show where we talk to children's authors so kids can see and hear from people who write their books. It's called The Van Show. Uh, It's on YouTube and done through Austin Public Library, so there's never a fee. Kids get to see that authors are real people and be inspired to write their own stories. Also, fantastic work, Devo Carpenter. Uh, And they did what you can do, which is email events at id10t.com. Just to let us know what you're doing. Hopefully we can get the word out for you. This episode is Sean Penn, who is promoting the book Bob Honey Sings Jimmy Crack Corn. Uh, We got to go to his house in Malibu and uh, sat down with him. And and he was really kind and gracious. And uh, we had a really wonderful chat. And he has the sweetest dog in the world. Uh, It was kind of like a... Maybe a golden lab, but it just hung out with us the whole time and got snuggles and hugs. And, and I just I just have to say, I hope it's not weird, that I may just need to go from time to time, just knock on Sean Penn's door and be like, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. Can I just come in and hug your dog? I don't want to get in the way. Hug your dog. And I'm going to leave and then I'm just going to drive back into the city. Just maybe once a month from time to time. So here's the ID10T podcast number 1021 with Mr. Sean Penn. Initiating ID10T protocol. 
coffee seeps into the bloodstream, slowly bringing back to life. How long has this uh, particular press tour been? Well, I think only, I think this is the 10th day of it. Yeah. Yeah, so nothing uh, too extreme, but a lot of bouncing around. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you said the travel, too. Yeah, yeah, it beats you up a bit. (laughs) It does not ever get any easier, no matter how many times you do it, you think you're going to get used to it, and then you don't, because Mm -hmm. I don't think we were really meant as creatures to be uh, dragged around the skies that high up. And and in particular, you you know, you do at some point become aware that uh, it is your thoughts that are being focused on in the discussion, and that becomes, you know, the, the threat of embarrassment um, uh, raises. Yeah, but it's it also kind of seems like at a certain point, do you just let all that go and just go? Well, I guess it's going to be whatever it's going to be. I mean, do you not stress about that stuff anymore? Uh, I do stress about it. Uh, and then I do say just that to myself and move on, you know, take the step forward. So I'm ready to go. I'm ready to try it. I know, but it is, it is, it is interesting that the, there's so much around the creative process, just all the commerce stuff around the creative process that I think I'm sure in a, from a romantic point of view, it'd be really nice if you could just make stuff and then not have to worry about any of the promotion or any kind of this or any kind of that or any kind of the businessy stuff. And then, I mean, do you find that it gets in the way, or can you keep it separate? No, I, you know, it's, first of all, in my case, it's the only way. I've had the particular luxury of being able to have access to um, huckstering this, this book um, <laughs> in, in ways that a lot of first- or second-time authors would not have. Uh, so I count my blessings on it, and I've, and I've enjoyed it to some degree. Uh, what, what, what it's much I find it much easier to talk to people about the book once they've read it right uh the idea of talking about it in a way that might lead them to read it uh takes a little more of uh you know, valuable energy yeah because it's it's it, you can't really it, you can't really explain it in words you just have to experience it it is a book you just have to experience because I even saw you on Kimmel and you were like well yeah it's kind of you sort of explained in broad strokes but it's sort of it's difficult, especially in five minutes, to say this is what the book is about. Yeah, it is, and I think on Kimmel I referred to the um, the, the dancing about architecture uh, idea. I think it, it, that it can be because you've got, especially in the kind of writing that um, these books are. There's a, there's, there's a, a musicality to the, the to the humor of them. And without that musicality, I think that you're just being blasted by alliteration. Right. And and what I call ludicrous language. Um, So it's hard to set the tone of that rhythm in discussion about the book. Yeah, Yeah, but it's also like, I mean, you have amazing paintings in your house. You know, if you explain a painting, it's sort of like, well, I don't know. I guess I just have to see the, I have to experience the painting. Right, right. And I think that's you know what what we'd like to think is the fair ask of um, the speaker to the listener uh, on something like this. And at the end of the book, in the acknowledgments, the last paragraph was really really funny because you you know you thank a bunch of people sincerely, and then there's basically like a to all the people who criticized the first book, thank you for criticizing the first book because it inspired me to write the second book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think there is that. 
there, you know, I, I joke, but somehow I, th I think it is about true that my first um, hope would have been the Pulitzer Prize in reaction to the first one. Uh, but in but uh, in a very close second position, it is to have uh, raised the ire of those who would be unwilling to give it a real thought and a real read. Uh, because I think it, you know, obviously I wouldn't put the book out if I didn't like it and feel that it communicated something that was important to me to express. Yeah. And so I stand by it. And uh, sometimes it, uh, its value becomes clearer to oneself uh, as it gets uh, emotional responses, be they uh, negative or positive. <laughs> and when you're what is your writing process for a, for a book like this? Because it is such a specific tone. It's such a specific voice. The narrator has a specific way of expressing the ideas in the book. And so do you, do you, are you the type of writer that do you get struck by inspiration? Or you go, I'm going to write from nine to five today and whatever comes out comes out. And, and this is part of the process. Well, typically it takes me about 30 days of 15 hour days of writing to, to get out what's, what seems to be burning in me to get out. Uh, the, what, the, um, what comes of that is not something that I think uh, I could fairly ask people to uh, go with by osmosis, and I need to then clarify it, uh, and that takes about a year of work following. But the first, so that I have down um, the code that I know of what the, what I'm trying to write. That that's about 15 days of or 30 days of about 15 hour days, and they go by very quickly. I make notes longhand. I make notes on my phone um, in the in the late hours of night before we go to sleep. I get up very early, about five. Um, I'll continue those notes until nine o'clock when I have an assistant come in, who unlike me can handle a laptop computer, and at that point I can take those bullet points I've put together. Uh, sections of a line or a description and then I start pacing the room usually with a cigarette and uh, and letting it kind of come out by dictation and uh, the next thing I know it's nine o'clock at night and uh, it's time to let that person go and time for me to start back with the long hand in preparation for the, for the next day. And does it feel the same as other things you've done acting and directing? Does it feel... Like, does the product sort of feel like, oh, this is just a different expression of the same kind of artistic idea or muscle? Or does it, is it a whole different layers of judgment, layers of it within yourself? Does it feel different? It does feel different. It is very much the same, though, without any of the balls and chain of what it is to be a collaborator mm -hmm. or what it is to work in a medium uh, where every decision costs money. Uh, as a writer, you, you, you know, I, I often talk about in screenplay writing, the moment that you, you know, write a thousand soldiers appear over the rise, uh, you're not in the indie world anymore. Right. And it, it is a, a bloodletting enterprise to go into f the financing of films that you care about over a period of 40 years. Um, and I think at some point you start becoming kind of a practical self-censor in the way that you Right and 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 to what degree you let your imaginings go, and as writing a novel, it doesn't cost any more for the for the author or for the reader to um, have a more have a completely free set of imaginings. Yeah, to describe. So I found it much more fulfilling in that sense, and I think I was, you know, they, there's the line. Uh, 
it does not play well with others. And I think I got to the point creatively uh, where it was getting becoming a louder uh, call of duty to recognize that I was no longer playing well with others and it was time to do something creative that was entirely my own. Yeah, but not everyone would have the sense to do that. <laughs> they would just... I mean, do you feel like you have a pretty good perspective on yourself in that way and a pretty good kind of point of view? I think I've always tried to, um, as much as focusing on where I want to go with things creatively, I always think it's important to to know the limitations within which you're, you're currently saddled. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you can... Uh, you stretch those and move those forward to a little degree each time out. But in in knowing those limitations, uh, the my, there is also the level of tolerance that you that that diminishes for the act of self censorship. And I think when it when the steam got hot enough in that kettle, um, taking off the top and letting the steam out was uh, was the two Bob Honey books. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a healthy way to deal with that, you know, like like using it to using art as a way to express that and to get it out as opposed to, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people in the business just probably just go crazy, you know, like it, it's it's a maddening, especially oh, the other thing I heard about on Kimmel that I thought was really interesting. Where you're like, yeah, I didn't I just got read an email that your I imagine distance from the melee and the noise of our you know media obsessed culture mm-hmm. have you it was that a true statement have you pretty much just disengaged from all that i'm in a very active state of of uh, of, of disengagement yeah from from that I, I think that i've i've gotten to a point where because i feel the pressures of even on a, on a most basic way um if someone sends me a message on email or uh, by text I want to be able to answer that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if in a busy life, uh, you say, well, I'm going to get back to that person once I speak to so-and-so about what it is that helps me give the first person the answer. And then another set of those arrives from another angle of your life, and you're at dinner. And now another one, and by by the next day, you, there are 12 people you are you've ignored, essentially, uh, in in the experience at the other end, and uh, and and now you're dealing with more current things, and they build up and they build up, and I just thought, well, here's an easy one. No, <laughs> <laughs> if you if the machine is not <laughs> if the machine isn't there, then there's no way that you can suffer right, from it. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seems like when I don't know if you were like this when you were younger, but when but when we're young, it's like, oh, we want to build, we do bigger, we do more, we do bigger. And then I feel like the older I get, the more I understand the people who are like, get rid of all your possessions, get rid of everything, disconnect, you know, like, because it's just all, they're all just kind of chains, you know, like all of those chains, the simplification, the simplifying, I used to think it was crazy. And now I'm like, no, no, it's just healthy because you can't be sidled with all with more and more and more and more forever yeah it's it's hard to to live in capital l-i-v-e if you're spending all of your time curating a daily growing a mass of uh, data and and material i ha- i did have an experience uh, long before 
um, one had cell phones. I did. I, it was back. Mobile phones had already come yeah. up, but where I had a house with everything, my every possession I'd ever had, uh, from photographs going back to my childhood all the way forward to pa- paintings and so on, uh, furniture that I had built in this house, and um, one of these Malibu fires came and took it away in a very absolute, very complete uh, uh, action of fire, and. There was nothing of it left, and there was this incredibly liberating uh, feeling there. And I moved into a 28-foot trailer where essentially anything I did own I could reach. I knew where it was every day. The inventory of my possessions was both spare and accessible. Mm -hmm. And I found that a very uh, productive atmosphere to be, live, and work in. Yeah, because I think it's we I talk about it a lot on the especially on the podcast because I'm just fascinated by the idea of it that we are fed this idea that or we learn it somehow that you know more is better more 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 and but it's an unfillable like we're it's like there's a hole that we can only fix going inward instead of like grabbing externally to fill, 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 fill. And it just, the constant filling just leads to more distress because it never works. It never works. Yeah. It's, um, and it becomes, it, it is all consuming. Yeah. And you do therefore detach from, um, people and other living things, uh, the, the more deeply you engage in it. And with Malibu too, just sort of driving through, I mean, you can see it's the, seemingly random nature of like this house intact nothing left on that lot they're rebuilding here they really i mean it even just to live out here sort of feels like you're kind of i mean i know that most parts of the country have a a a semblance of a natural disaster to contend with but the fires seem particularly insidious because there really is once they're going there's just not that much you can do Mm -hmm. and do you? I, I've noticed some for sale signs around here, and I wonder, like, are people like, yeah, fuck this, I can't, I just can't handle the stress of of it anymore. Well, I think some of it is that. Some of it is also people whose um, uh, insurance was not complete. People who had these properties uh, through their families and had them for many years, and as the property uh, value exponentially grew, um, the the ability to uh, maintain living here. Uh, once, you know, with having to build a new house and so on, and with so many costs uh, being paid by the builder and, and not insurance, uh, there are people that just had to make the decision to go. I mean, it's Malibu is a particularly interesting community because you do have these mega mansions, but then you also have these really amazing, like, someone just dropped a trailer in, like, 1962 on a yeah. plot of land, and they have an incredible view, and that's that's that. Yeah, no, it, and, and this area of Malibu, I think there are, even post this last fire with all the houses that were lost, which I think were about 300, uh, we we still are um, two, three times the amount of structures, including homes and businesses, uh, of what this area was when I grew up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it was, and you still have so many of people, you know, pe- a lot of people who live out here bought, their homes were about $38,000 in, in the mid-60s, <laughs> late-70s. Wow. I mean, it. Uh, from what I gather about you, too, is that you're not afraid of natural disasters because you uh, – the charity work you do is 
is incredible. That these areas that are hit by some type of natural disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, whatever it is, you're usually one of the first response teams to go down there and bring aid to people. And it seems like you've been doing that for quite a long time. Well, I wouldn't say that doesn't reflect a, a fear of them. I, I, have a, I have a great fear of the increasing vulnerability that, that everybody everywhere has. Um, you know, what we've seen in the United States, there is the, the highly vulnerable hurricane belt in the south, the east, and in, in the Gulf, and, and, and in the Mediterranean, that we're, we're seeing these uh, size-rising storms and so on. But it, it does occur to me, driving even the coast of California recently, um, how dry everything is. And, and uh, the, the, it leaves us vulnerable, increasingly vulnerable, uh, what's happened with uh, climate, what's happened with the use of water. Um, and I think that, you know, we should be all very aware that th these are very real stepping stones to uh, f further disaster. Yeah, but it's also not just um, – I mean, it's great that when there's a disaster, people do rally, they donate money. But the, but there's also the distribution of – like someone's got to handle the distribution of that money. But your charity, like actually going down and helping to create infrastructure that gets local people together to provide foods, to provide shelters, to make sure it's, – it's sort of the, you know, teaching a man to fish philosophy. Right. Right, and uh, and our what had been known as JPHRO, the Haitian Relief Organization, we turned into uh, the Com Community Organized Relief Effort Core, and it is the, I do note that many of the organizations that people contribute to are not themselves implementers; that they are uh, a kind of bank that then one is trusting to find those. Uh, grassroots organizations to to support. We do both because we have implementation teams on the ground, but we t typically now when we go into an area that's been hit by any kind of a natural disaster, the first thing we do is seek out partnerships who are local to the area because that, and it's what happened, you know, uh, um, effortlessly in Haiti because as we were starting to um, take actions in Haiti, we gained trust of local Haitians who came and and volunteered to work with us. And so in many ways, the organization was, uh, the architecture of it was designed by people who understood the place, you know, topographically and culturally, mm -hmm. and gave us the ability to, to be, um, I think, more effective. Um, and so we then have since expanded to work in the in the hurricane belt, and in uh, we have people in the Bahamas now, for example, and, and working with local and other um, frequent partner organizations. Jose Andres's uh, World Central Kitchen, for example, mm -hmm. uh, we 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 have become used to the idea that when we land, they will they will have landed either just before or just after us, and so we uh, we march as one. And what's something that you think people don't – what's something that you would like people to understand about these situations that you would only know if you had been down there and experienced it uh, firsthand? Well, while there is a great responsibility of any strong state to, to participate, 
to take the lead on, especially the sovereign governments of, of places outside the U.S., to take the lead on coordination of the efforts of, of any of those of us that are working in their area. What is also true is that we can't expect governments uh, to respond in the, in the, in, at the level that we think that they should. We are, these are very chaotic events, and, and each one has its own personality. And there is a lot of room for civilians to help. The places in the world that have the best response, I, uh, Cuba, for example, he, they, they live in sectors of community where a, a chain of reporting is pre-established. And jobs and, and uh, skill sets are al- have already been learned in, re- in responding to these kinds of, like for example, in particular area, hurricanes. Uh, everyone knows what to do. So in the case where we will see tens, hundreds, even thousands killed or injured uh, in the United States, uh, not many years ago, uh, Cuba was hit by three dramatic hur- hurricanes uh, within the course of a couple of weeks. And they lost a total of two people. Um, then you know we are in a time, and I think the, the the natural disaster is in some ways a metaphor for the other ways that we have to become an active one. Um, another another area that that applies is in uh, participating in the electoral system, right? Uh, and not only in the system, but holding the feet to the fire on policies that are. Uh, promised or possible with uh, with whatever candidate we support and whoever uh, uh, the country selects. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. I mean, I I can't, I kind of wonder, I I saw an interview with you from a couple of years ago and... The person interviewing you was I, I I I know that their intention was to be like oh wow I just yeah I I love your acting and but would not let up on you're like yeah it just isn't really for me anymore really because you really and you're like yeah no I just it was almost like you didn't know how I don't know how to express to you enough that it just isn't and I was kind of wondering when you go firsthand and you see devastated communities you see humanity. Um, you know, these communities just decimated. Does that do something to you where you go, you know what, I'm just not sure <laughs> the entertainment business is really all that important anymore? I think it's with, you know, you are inevitably going to face a lot of heartbreak and failure in uh, in working to uh, rebuild um, one person's life, much less an entire community or country. Uh, and by you, I don't mean alone. We have a lot of people. There are a lot of people. You find a lot of uh, kindred spirits in these in these places. Uh, and and as you suggested, pe- people, human beings, tend to bond um, um, in a in a more fr- uh, uh, s- spontaneous way when the uh, when the damage is tangible, when the threat is tangible. 
but I think it is the experience of the successes when you are able to to take action and help someone or help a group of people uh, that gets in your bones. It's 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 something that I think would would uh, should inform a decision of of the, of the country and the culture and, and perhaps one more that we're going towards of um, mandatory service, uh, be that in forestry or the military or in taking care of the elderly or, or whatever it is. It can be on a very localized basis. But I think that when young people have an experience of of having made a difference, that they matter, um, that sticks with them. Uh, it's a formative experience. And foundationally, then moving on through life, you have people who are prone to service and prone to to, um, the optimism that what they do can mean something. Yeah. And that came in a only in its most significant way, very late in my life. And I, I I think that uh, I I would certainly um, have counted myself a beneficiary of mandatory service. Had I, had I had it uh, cast on me. Well, how, I mean, how have how do you feel like you've changed since you were younger? What types of things did you want when you were younger? Did you just want to act, or were you like, oh, this fame thing seems okay? I mean, that obviously was part of it. It was a much different time. But what was what was it that you set out to do initially? Was it just to work? Well, keeping in mind, it was I was coming out of a movie fandom and theater fandom that we still talk about today as uh, a kind of touched era. Mm-hmm. Um, to be a participant in the kind of films that seemingly were going to be made uh, when one jumped in, when I came in out of out of the theater. And I look back now, and I had a lot of frustration because it felt that the era had just come to its end. And the studio uh, principle that, that, that you know is, is echoing more today, where if you put a few thoughts into a film, you kind of broke the law, mm-hmm. um, had already begun to take over. So, But, but I, I, I think that I started a career with a, a lot of dreams attached to what had, had recently been um, the frame for whatever that career might be and those opportunities uh, to be creative as an actor. Um, and I found it almost always frustrating um, I was able then, after about ten years of doing that, to uh, you know evolve into directing in film, where I was, where now I was in command of the three thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, or more than I put into the film, and also that those thoughts somehow lined up with what it was that I was thinking about. If I was driving alone in a car at that moment, that you can you can select the current, what is what's interesting to me right now. Which was a shot in the dark when you're an actor for hire. You sure. don't know what kind of material you're going to lock into for months of your life. But then more time goes by, and yeah, something like Haiti comes up. And, it, and it's, it, you know, I, th- I think you have to ask yourself am I using my time best by dressing in someone else's clothes in the morning and, and uh, going out away from my home for months at a time? Um, to make a movie, or can I use my time better uh, the same time by uh, reaching out to those who uh, wouldn't have time or access to go see a movie? Right. Uh, they're busy uh, staying alive or 
scrapping together what little money they, they can to get their children an education. Well, yeah, because everything, especially the, the business really conditions everyone to sort of feel like, and not to blame the business as a sentient being, but just the idea that like, oh, this is so important. What we're doing is so important, you know, and then and we take it really seriously. And then, you know, hopefully at some point we do have experiences where we're like, oh, yeah, this isn't this is just our weird bubble. And it's unlike 99 percent of, of the rest of the world. And so how do we. How do we remind ourselves or what are good ways that we remind ourselves? Is it just the idea of like, whatever you got to fucking do on a Sunday, just go volunteer somewhere. Just go get in front of people, do something. Don't tweet about it. <laughs> just go do it to do it and connect with other people. I, I couldn't have said it better. Oh, good. <laughs> what are some ways that you, um, I don't know, like what are some ways that people can get involved either with core or with, you know, with local charities? I mean, what, what advice would you give to people who want to be more involved but don't know what to do? Well, I think it's, I think it's valuable to consider, especially if one is making a, um, you know, a proactive decision to say, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and start being a contributor in ways I haven't to, to someone or something. Um, you know, it may be that for one person... They will be more productive, and their their energy for that will sustain better when they attach um, an attractive adventure to it. Um, I, I, without it being necessarily that, I found that uh, you know, when I've talked about Haiti, I, I always have to consider that had it been um, um, an earthquake in East Africa, uh, I would unlikely have gotten involved on the level I did in Haiti simply because... If I'm in Haiti and something happens with a family or member or a friend back here uh, that they need my presence or support, well, it's a quick flight to Miami, and then boom, I'm back in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It's geographically sound. Mm -hmm. um, I think so. You, you know, pick an area that you can reach that might be right in your own neighborhood. There are, you know, I know that even on this street, uh, there are uh, several elderly couples. Um, I think, you know, a 16-year-old can knock on those doors and say, hey, how are you? You know, Can I go get you some groceries? Helen, there's a weird kid at the door. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, that's part, that is part of any emergency relief. Sure. You, you have a lot of coaxing to do. I had that experience in, in, uh, during the uh, post-Katrina where we had many two-hour conversations standing in an inflatable boat where somebody had been on a roof for days uh, with little water, watching helicopters zip around and dead bodies cruise by, yeah. and where you had, had to coax them and, and, and get their trust to get them in that boat to bring them to dry land. And in many cases, these were people, especially in that, those neighborhoods that we were working in, there was an incredibly high rate of diabetes. And these were people who'd been away from their insulin for a long time. And those, but the problems don't have to be as dramatic as that. I think that you know, finding your lane, finding something that you will start and then continue and learn better and better how to do it, something that interests you. So, you know, when, when people talk to me about Haiti, I, um, before I ask them for money to support our organization, if they have the liberty to do it, if they can afford to do it, 
I'm um, always quick to say, you know, let me show you the country. Mm-hmm. And you look around, show you what we're doing, show you what other organizations are doing, show you what the grassroots groups are doing, and see if something turns you on enough where you're going to really uh, jump in uh, with the whole body. And do you think that our constant quest through life as we get older is the uh, disbanding and disillusion of disillusion of our ego uh, to sort of get out of the way so that we can be up because ego, I feel like it, it kind of attracts us to sort of just focus on ourselves. And I feel like there's a constant because it does feel good, you know, feel it wants you to feel good. How do you smack that out of the way? Well, this is this. I think if we're, you know, being realistic is where certain personalities bend uh, in the direction of of, of further um, uh, self-rewarding events in their lives, some grow intolerant of those that are ego-based, and and then their imagination starts to function properly. Others recognize a time in their life where, I remember I was uh, writing, the first movie I directed, I was writing it, and there was a lo- one of the characters has a line in the movie, which is, somebody was boring me. I think it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and I can, in speaking for myself, um, uh, in January of 2010, when I turned on the TV just over there in the other room, and I saw the, the Haiti earthquake and um, the amputations that were being done without any intravenous pain medications on children and others, um, I was very much, as a person uh, who thought he was invested in his world, uh, that person who was saying, somebody is boring me, I think it's me. And what was boring me was to go to dinners and talk about it, to write a check to an organization, say, okay, that's it, I'm helping, I'm done. And so I decided to break the boredom and go to Haiti. And it was one of the most valuable lessons I ever had. The idea was to go there for just a couple of short weeks distributing pain medication to the clinics and hospitals doing trauma work. But once there, um, there's something, you know, I have traveled quite a bit around the world now. And what what you find very commonly related to to the country of Haiti is that whether you're talking to people who have a long history as conflict journalists traveling the world or 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 any any um, invested travel in third world countries who are up against the climate issues mm-hmm. in a much more existential way than we are yet, and up against the the, the significant issue of poverty, uh, and you one after another of these people, journalists, aid workers, uh, and so on, they'd all say there's something about Haiti, and that's in the people there. And so it was. It became, um, you know, among the more healthy addictions that I've ever had. Well, that's really nice. Because I saw I. The other thing I saw you say on Kimmel, and it just felt like an aside. I'm like, I bet that that. I wonder if that's true. Where you said, oh, I get I get uncomfortable outside of a room of four people who are my friends, in front of in front of other people. Is that true? Is that true, or are you just kind of being self-deprecating? No, it's it's really true. And again, it's something about recognizing your limitation. I've made efforts. I've gone in many, many, many. I still do go outside that comfort zone socially. 
And I always pay a tax for it. <laughs> I've never been able to find a way to make it uh, fulfilling. And uh, my biorhythms get set off. <laughs> um, I am the limitation of, of what I, when I am, when I have something to offer in a social circumstance, uh, because I am a social creature, but it is within the limitation of a small group in a comfortable place that I know well. Yeah. And where I can reach my own refrigerator, pour my own vodka, and I use my own phone or turn it off. Right. Well, but also, I mean, you're also in this rare position of having been known for a few decades and it's also like how do you know who to trust, you know? Like you you when you're young, you just kind of surround yourself with whoever because you're like, hey, everyone, hey, we're all hanging out. And then you get you get burned and you get burned and you get burned. And you're like, fuck, I don't want to be someone who doesn't trust people. But I, you got to sort of pick and choose where your energies go. Yeah, well, I think like anybody, I would I would guess that if if you meditate on the idea of who that is a genuine friend or family member, have I neglected lately? And very quickly, the reason for that neglect is that you've opened the door to too many distractions. Mm -hmm. You've taken on too many obligations. It is a, it is a, a, uh, 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 one of the aspects of people pleasing, um, that a lot of us can fall into, um, or something that, you know, relates to kind of a temporary stimulation of, 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 of somebody that you've let in, into your life that really isn't going to fulfill anything. And I think that you can make, uh, you can take a day and go through the contacts in your phone, um, delete those <laughs> who you really don't need to talk to my wife does that and she says then the greatest. and then change your number and notify the remaining group in your phone that they are the only ones that have it and please if that's to go if it's to go to others let it come from me right? right and inevitably you will fall back and you will re-extend re-overextend but at least you are intermittently purging that which is going to make you feel like you're not living your life while you're living it. Because right. you, we can make our minds and our obligations so so busy. Uh, we can be pursuing so much stimulation that we find ourselves numb and neglectful. Is that just because you think we're trying to fill emptiness or because we need to be distracted or because we're looking for validation? What do you think that is? Well, right now, I think a lot of it is addiction to technology. Uh, the technology allows us to imagine we are communicating with people uh, in ways uh, far less connected than, than we, what we actually need as human beings to, to, to as I said, feel our lives. Mm -hmm. It is a kind of um, facsimile of life uh, that probably started with the fax machine <laughs> uh, where we thought we were communicating things. Often... You know, one of the other things that you can that can test the water on on this philosophy happened in Haiti, where I would go to there would be something of a very urgent um, character that one would suggest need to get done, and I would go back to the person I had tasked uh, for that, and I say, "Well, what happened?" 
And the answer, more often than not, was, I emailed so-and-so, I'm waiting to hear back. Oh, wow. And And in those cases, sometimes while you were waiting, the person you were emailing on behalf of died. Jesus. And where you don't, you know, you got to go past that. You got to call them. You got to go find them. Knock on their door or knock on their head and get the medication that they're holding somewhere, whatever it is. Um, I think we've just become too uh, happy with feeding data into uh, the availability of, of the person that we're transmitting it to and feeling that that says we've done our job, right. whether it's socially or or an emergency. Yeah. I mean, it. I'm old enough to remember when you had to call people, and if they weren't home, you maybe left a message with their parents, and, and then you'd really just have to go see them. <laughs> but But the availability the allure of like oh you don't have to leave your house you have all the you have an entire fucking movie studio in your television you have every form of communication the sum total of human knowledge in something the size of a coaster why would you ever need (laughs) why would you ever need to leave your house why would you even need to call a friend you can just look up porn yeah Uh, <laughs> I'm friends with porn now. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes, but it's funny what you brought up about, you know, maybe you'd leave a message with the parents. It is true that, you know, in the last 25 years, as kids started to, as we normalized kids using these um, tools of social media on their cell phones, on their laptops, that there became uh, a lot, you know, I watched it with my own kids growing up, that that filter that, that, I lived under the one where my parents had a sense of the people I was communicating with. Yeah, yeah. Who's with. that? Who are you hanging out with? Yeah, I, t- I talked to a kid named Joey today who was looking for you. Who's Joey? Um, <laughs> he sounds like he uses opiates. Uh, but instead, Joey, who sounds like he's using opiates, and your child are off to the races using opiates yeah and uh, it goes uh under the radar of the parents yeah i mean the blue dot on their phone even if you even if you have your kid on find my friends it's like the blue dot doesn't say that there's opiates involved it just says where they are maybe unless they left their phone somewhere ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, did you, um, because you got famous pretty young and you still managed to get through it. And did it feel instantly like... Oh, this is a weird thing, and I need to distance myself from this as much as possible. This being known, this, you know. Yeah, it came up on me in two big jumps of a surprise. Uh, because, for one thing, at the time that I started working, about uh, 1978, um, and I started working at that point in, th- in local theaters, uh, 99 seat theaters around Los Angeles, and then later in New York, um, there were no actors um they, they were not doing any films with the lead of which was a, a teenager or a, a young 
person in their mm-hmm. in their early twenties. I don't think that there had been a real strong march of those films or those opportunities since the death of James Dean. Mm-hmm. And we'd gotten where our kind of you know next generation heroes were closer to thirty. I mean, you, know, you think back to somebody like Nick Nolte, who didn't have as big success till he was thirty nine years old, right? Playing a teenager <laughs> in a rich man, poor man. So you, one got into into the theater with the romantic uh, hope that you might spend 20, 30 years in a small ad hoc makeup room, um, putting on, you know, looking down at your boots and putting on stage makeup and going out and performing a play with your own name not being known for many years to come on opportunities that were going to pay you and give you a career. Uh, it wasn't part of the thinking. You may be very confident that you were going to have the career as in the, as, that your dreams designed, but it was going to take a long time. And you had no, you had nothing like entertainment television on. There right. wasn't the focus on the back on the backstory of actors. There was still some mystery, uh, which I'm I, I, I like. You know, I, I liked not knowing too much about what I was going to see or how much money it made at the box office <laughs> to, right. to value things in this way. Incrementally, all those things changed, and the the kind of disease of celebrity. Um, over form, over acting, over even the celebrity in politics, all of these things. And it became very normalized to where today we're at a, a place where I think exhibitionism is kind of, it's, it, you, could, you could put the word exhibitionism where Oliver Stone early put in the word greed. You know, mm-hmm. greed is good. Uh, exhibitionism Absolutely. is good. And I find myself increasingly alienated by all of that. Um, if, if I ever have to take another selfie with, with somebody, <laughs> I will lose another year of the life of, of life. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, these are wounding enterprises, <laughs> and so in the in the Bob Honey books, that which so much of it is driven by that because I wanted to create a character who was immune to normalization and conditioning sure. this way that his moral code, complicated though it may be to some, um, was clear. And that he, there was no there was it, he he lived the uncommon thought on the uncommon matter, and if not the uncommon thought, the uncommon clarity of purpose. Uh, and and also was not without that main purpose being to find love, that basic, simple, and most connected human uh, relationship. And so that allowed for the kind of ludicrous farce um, of the kind of comedy of, of, of the pieces that really feel more like real life today than than things that are written um, as though we have not normalized um, that the world isn't bass 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 uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because it. I mean, obviously, I know throughout the you know the golden age of film, you know, there were t- tabloid columns. It was like, Hedda Harper writes about the stars or whatever. But you're right. It really was like late 70s, early 80s. It's all of a sudden there was this like tabloid culture, like a whole fucking culture of it. And I know it's always, again, it's always existed in some form, whether it was 
you know, play reviewers or whatever, but it really, really with the kind of the explosion of media of media in when cable came along that all of a sudden the demand for oh i need we need to fill programming we need to fill shit up so let's just start fucking talking about all this stuff yeah and maybe more insidious than the discussions about celebrity and those things related to fame and the entertainment business is our our what was our news cycle and when we went into the 24-hour news cycle, it, what's in, what I find interesting is that we hear less stories more often. Mm-hmm. And that most of what we see in the mainstream media, and this includes that which is reported by some very talented uh, and well-intended journalists, we see a repetitive um, um, speculation uh, that is in itself entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have those, and, and and in many many ways, there is too much information coming at us. And it, even, again, even in terms of the emergency within our own lives, which I think is omnipresent, which we were talking about before, too much coming at us. How do we choose to be to have purpose? Um, you can't do it all. Uh, that people like to talk about, you know, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, it, you know, for all of those boasts in our Congress, they just can't. Right. So you, I remember the uh, the late president of of Haiti, uh, who who was president at the time of the earthquake, very wise, very practiced politician. People were very frustrated with him. This is Rene Preval, that he wasn't. Um, taking the lead in the way that they thought that he should. Well, he, the GDP had had an incremental rise in Haiti leading up to the earthquake um, like none it had ever seen. There was a very slow and progressive build that was happening in all sectors uh, of, of the Haitian economy, and quality of life was was building. He had also been through the, the broken promises and the dictatorships of the past in that country. And he was somebody who felt very deeply that the Haitian people uh, believed when they saw the actions, that words were irrelevant. And he didn't take the conventional position of stepping out forward or, you know, or being Rudy Giuliani in New York City uh, post 9-11. And people were very frustrated about it. But they were also frustrated about it because he... He couldn't make any promises because all that money that came in to to help Haiti, uh, none of it was under his control. So there was no, he was not in a position to make promises without uh, um, the calculator next to the mm-hmm. next to the promise. And I think that what he, the recommendation he made his predecessor was, after his experiences being president a couple of terms and also had been prime minister under Aristide, he said, pick eight things for the five-year term that they have in Haiti. Pick eight things that you're going to spend all your time on. Get those done. Mm-hmm. And I watched the next five-year term, and I watched good people t- try to take it all on, and um, it didn't work. It didn't, it, it didn't work, and it was actually set back in so, so many ways. Uh, I think we need to be, as individuals or public servants, um, surgical. What can, what can I get done 
that's going to make tomorrow not heroic, triumphantly better, but a little bit better. But that's, that focus is so difficult to achieve when what you said previously, too, is that we're so – it's the – even not even just the 24-hour news cycle, the 24-hour everything cycle. And we can't process this information. And so this this machine just powers itself. It's like, I'm overloaded. I need to distract myself. I'm going to distract myself with the machine. The machine creates more. I need more. And it fucking never ends. Yeah. Constant demand is not fertile ground for the imagination, whether it be in the creative arts or in uh, emergency relief or, or, or certainly not in governance. Yeah. And how do you know whether it's, you know, your book or directing or when you are acting? Like, wh- what do you what do you define in your head as success? How do you how do you say like, OK, I, I, I was successful at this thing. What are what are some of the ways that you know that? Uh, any I have had several readers of the books, people I knew and people I haven't known as I've toured around and talked about it and people have started to read them. Um, who get a, a good giggle in an area that's been pa- painful to them. Um, it's it's kind of current operating room humor. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, if it has a contribution, it's to, to articulate some of, uh, you know, our, our deeper challenges in a way that we can, you know, get a little bit of oxygen to know we're not alone and thinking those thoughts. And it won't be for everybody. Not everybody will read my book and connect with it in that way. But just finding that some do um, has me very encouraged. Well, that's good. But don't you think also that there are ways, are there internal ways for you that you know you've done something the way that you wanted that that doesn't really necessarily rely on, you know, whether or not someone connects with something or how well it does or how this or that? Like, how do you know personally, Sean, like, okay, this is... I did what I wanted to do. This is I've checked all those internal boxes. There's there's a great line in literature, uh, which I quoted when I adapted the script for uh, John Krakauer's Into the Wild, which was happiness only real when shared. And I think again, I go back to where I know where I feel I've done something you know tangible that I'm proud of. It's when, uh, you know, when as I focus it on the books, it's again I'll say it's when the book connects with somebody, mm-hmm. um, it, and 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 not that it's going to connect with everybody. The 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 you know I write part of what makes me giggle while I'm writing is the ire I will raise of those who won't connect with it. <laughs> You're kind of trolling people. It, in a sense, there's. <laughs> You know, I I joke, but I think it's really true because the first book got um, leveled in criticism by what are called literary critics today. In most cases, I got the the uh, the amusement of being able to read reviews that told me these people had never actually read the book; mm-hmm. that uh, it was me they were reviewing or their perception of me. Right, and the um, you know the how dare he write a novel. Uh, right uh, group that who, who i i really think could be a bit more cheerful but they're not <laughs> <laughs> and uh and yet to have great writers who i had only ever known through their work embrace the book uh and not only embrace it but be able to talk about it in ways that let me know that i had done what i intended to do the way i'd intended to do it um, and that it's that it's a, that it's available to those for whom it's a bit of medicine. 
I remember uh, the director, Lawrence Kasdan, was speaking at the AFI many years ago. And he said, you know, he says, money's great. Uh, you know, it gives you a lot of freedom to do things. You can give some to people that need, need help. You can travel. Um, it, it affords one a lot of freedoms. But if you're in the movie business just to make money, I'm against you. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, this, this, what we do, uh, it, it has the possibility of being big medicine. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be warm and cuddly with the stories that we tell. We may be trying to provoke things we don't want to look at. But in the end, if you do your job well, for those who need that medicine, you might be the only one making it. And uh, I think that, you know, we owe that that opportunity at least that much thought that, that, that for somebody this is going to be useful. Right. Right. But then how did you, between acting and directing and screenwriting and now novel writing, was there anything that was so much a, more of who you felt like you were that it's, you know, that some of that, what you were talking about being leveled by critics, did it sting a little more? Because you're like, fuck, you know, when I'm acting, I'm playing someone else's character. But this is really like, this really came out of me and that stings. <laughs> You know, I may be in a unique position this way. I had been, I think if you cross-referenced the bad press I I got, um, you know, and I also had my share of encouraging um, reviews in sure. movies and embrace as an actor or filmmaker through the years. That's another side of it. But if you just took the negative, <clears throat> I would say that I would have, It's in some years, I would um, hold a record over Hitler in terms of uh, of, of of haters uh, on me in the press, you do adapt, and you do start to find out. You know, you're not just prone to believe the worst of what's said. Sure. Uh, sometimes it's instructive. There is a thing called constructive criticism, mm-hmm. and I think either, as long as you live your life and you face some of the necessary humiliations in your life, be it personal or professional, that there's at least a part of your humility that grows. And as it does, it affords you a, a, a new seat at the table, one where uh, all reactions, be they good or bad, um, are valuable and add to the cheer of your day. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it um, you know, if I can make somebody that angry, <laughs> uh, then I, then I can, then I have also created a counterpart to that anger. And so I, I one of my jokes was, you know, on the first book was, well, let's say my first choice of a reaction to the book at large would have been the Pulitzer Prize. But a very close second would have been the kind of venal and, and green-eyed attacks that, uh, that came my way because they were mixed with this extraordinary um, commonality of, of thought and feeling and sense of uh, literature with writers and others who did appreciate it. Um, it wasn't a, just one side of the experience. And I found it uh, kind of like, a, you know, you could go on a roller coaster and as you're, as you're going click, 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 click to its highest point, and you can see how vertical that fall is going to be. Uh, if that fall is um, the, the, 
the bad criticism. Yeah. By the time you get d- down to the bottom and now you're racing back up another, that was it may well have been the most thrilling moment of the ride. <laughs> it's part of the roller coaster yeah. ride of it. Yeah. Did you ever, uh, just really quickly, was there ever a role where you thought, like, ah, I'm going to, it's like, you know, Obviously, coming out of something like Fast Times, where you're like, "Fuck this! Ca- this character is really connecting with people." Am I gonna? Is this gonna be? Are people just gonna see me as this forever? I mean, like, how do you? Because you navigated it beautifully. And what were there roles like that along the way where you're like, "I don't want to become too much of one thing because I still want to disappear into other th- roles and do other things." Was that ever a thought? It's funny where we get our our instructions. I had seen before I started working as an actor. I'd seen. A comedy called the Gumball Rally. Of course, yeah. And the Italian driver gets in the car with the other driver, and uh, they've just—they're just meeting, and they're going to be race, a racing team together. And uh, the other driver looks at the Italian driver, reaching out to the rearview mirror, and tugging it off, and throwing it behind the car as he sped off, and uh, with the line, "The first rule of Italian driving." What's a behind us does not matter. <laughs> um, and I think that I have approached my, I have looked for a through line. So I didn't dictate, for example, that, that Fast Times at Ridgemont High and the character I played in that would be the first, you know, major impression that I might make with what would be, I hoped, a long career. Mm-hmm. But it would influence what the next part of my story was. It would be, I'm going to, this is going to be one, it's, it's many movies over years, but it's one in, 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 in terms of finding that which is going to be my expression. And so depending upon the things that were not in my control always, I could choose not to do something when I could afford to. But you're adapting and saying, you're saying, I need to find a complement to that that somehow is connective tissue. And so it, it would take um, the memoir that I am loath to ever write uh, for me to explain how all of these roles are connected. Sure. But there was a proactive effort to kind of connect them. And, the, and that's a little bit different way of going about I want to do different things. There right. was more, um, a little more design to it, to the degree, as I say, to the degree that I could control that. Or, or at least say, okay... If I'm if this is what I'm doing that doesn't fall into the straight line of the story I want to tell throughout my life in cinema, mm-hmm. uh, then I'm going to start observing the patterns and still give sense uh, a common thread sense to all of it, and that's how I've always looked at it. So, if if Fast Times at Ridgemont High is the first hundred yards of the road I'm paving, um, then yes. I, uh, if you looked at the road as it goes on, you'll see a lot of bends and twirls. Um, but you won't see someone whose bends and twirls looked back in any other way than to say, uh, where am I trying to go and what's the best turn I can take given where uh, the road that I was given to start yeah. down? Yeah. Well, as we're kind of winding this down... First of all, thank you again for having me in your house. You're very welcome. Which is beautiful. And your artwork is incredible. Um, what are you, uh, what are you, is there something in particular that you're joyful about? Like what, what's kind of your peace? Like what's your joy? What makes you happy and excited right now? 
<clears throat> well, I start with uh, while we were in this conversation, and because um, you were generous enough to come out to the to the house, I saw a car pull up outside, uh, and my 26-year-old son, who actually graces the cover of my new book, um, a photograph of him when he was about five. I see that he'll he'll be uh, joining me this afternoon. Hadn't seen him for a few days. Uh, that makes me happy. And what makes me hopeful about things is more than ever, I've, I think I've said this, like most people who have a public forum speak on any social needs, say, you know, this idea of believing in the youth culture. But we've really had <clears throat> evidence that there is a, uh, a new brain, uh, a new resilience, and a new kind of passion when we look at people, and I, 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 you know, one that I immediately go to on this is uh, the young lady in, that uh, survived the Parkland shootings, uh, Emma Gonzalez. And I, you, you know, when one puts themselves in the in the uh, block walls, uh, echoing block walls of a public school, uh, complemented by the report of long barrel automatic weapons and and the images of their young friends who will not be able to pursue a life because their insides are on the floor um, um, from having been at the other end of that weapon. That kind of incredible horror. And to be a teenager and to the very next day be able to go on camera and be so articulate and so sharing of the experience and the call for change uh, in that case related to um, uh, guns, specifically assault weapons, um, you're seeing people who are no, no longer uh, just activists. They are, it, it is my view that they will succeed in changing things. And I haven't seen that in that way in my lifetime. I remember in the 60s, because I was paying attention as a very young man, the 60s, early 70s, you know, there was something inherently off with the anti-war movement because so much of it was represented in the media by, you know, hippies doing a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. And that put off a lot of the country. These, uh, and that, you know, allowed for, until Watergate, the continuation of, of a Nixon and a Kissinger um, and and the kind of, you know, humanly criminal behavior of leadership. Well, but but now today, despite the leadership we have, I think the the most powerful people are these young people, and, and I, I get a lot of hope and excitement out of where they're going to take us if we listen to them. Yeah, and I actually do think that as much as I, as much as I sometimes grouse about social media, which I am hypocritically a part of, but it, I do believe that it encourages young people to express themselves in a way that before I think maybe when we were growing up it was like, ah, eh, your kids, shut up. You know, you don't know nothing. You're kids, you know, and now kids are encouraged to express themselves and to connect and to try to reach out. So I do believe that there are some hopefully positive things about that as well. Yeah, well, there, listen, the the technology of it offers something positive. It's in the using of it that that yeah, we humans have can't many, have nice things, negatives. Sean. We can't have nice things. <laughs> you know, this is why Edward R. Murrow left television. It wasn't it wasn't the possibility of television. It was the use the the way that it was being used. Yeah, but. Lastly, speaking of nice things, I want to compliment you on your NeoRest toilet. I have one, too. And it is, it is a nice piece of technology to have. It 
I find more peace in that room than anywhere on the planet. <laughs> the seat warms. Yeah. It's got a it bidet is, feature. It says hello to you in the morning, opens up at your presence. Yeah. <laughs> going to be funny. If you ever, like, you know, fuck all this, I'm going to move back into a trailer, but... I'm just going to need the NeoRest toilet in the trailer. Uh, you know, you got, you've got, if you've got one of those toilets and an electric airplane that has no carbon footprint, um, uh, then I, you can give me a tent for the rest of it. Those are the two things. Uh, being able to travel freely with, uh, without a, uh, a pollutive f- footprint and being able to go to that damn toilet. <laughs> and then you can clearly say, I've found God. Well, the book is uh, uh, Bob Honey Sings Jimmy Crackhorn. Thank you again, and uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. The end. It's time for Word Salad Wrap. That was the Eddie Tenty Podcast number 1021 with Sean Penn. And um, there was a lot of really uh, great talk in there about charity work and not just not just like you know the idea of eh throw some money and then go back to your life but like really being involved and really doing stuff uh, for other people and I think in as much as we can get um, inundated with our daily lives and our own survival and our own goals and our own dreams it it's really easy sometimes I think it can be easy to forget to be a part of something bigger than us, something that doesn't directly um, affect us. And I know a lot of you do this kind of thing. But I, I just wonder that if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling like you don't have a direction, or if you're feeling empty, or if you're feeling not fulfilled, you know, even if you're doing a lot of the things that you think you you told yourself you wanted to do, then, you know, maybe maybe just today, if you can. If not, no worries. Tomorrow, the next day, or when you can, just go do something for someone else. You know, just show up someplace and help people with something just for them. Do it for them. And then don't really tell anyone about it. (laughs) Just have it be a little gift for you. Because I do think that being connected to a greater thing and getting outside of our own heads um, and getting outside of our own worlds is um, the best way to connect with humanity and the universe, you know, and... I think maybe it could provide you with um, the secondary benefits of feeling, I mean, obviously you do it for other people, but the secondary benefits are that you do feel more connected. You do feel like you're contributing. You do feel like you're a part of something. And maybe it might help, you know, um, connect you in ways and fulfill you in ways that just pursuing, you know, your own stuff isn't. And again, I'm not saying that it's bad to pursue your own stuff. We all pursue our own stuff. It's okay to pursue your own stuff, but you know, it's just like that, uh, that song by the band. Yes. You know, they have that line, don't surround yourself with yourself. And then now I need to go rehearse to try to get my voice up to par with the band. Yes. So I'm going to go do that for 30 years and then I'm gonna come back to you on that, on that musical line, which I could have just spoken. But, um, but again, it's the idea of not surrounding yourself with yourself. That that can be a very empty pursuit, kind of a cul-de-sac, an emotional cul-de-sac, if you will, because we do need to be connected to other people. And, and our, our ever, uh, growing digital lives (laughs) only, 
really, even though it feels like we're connecting to other people, that can create, you know, send us into these cul-de-sacs where we're just surrounding ourselves with ourselves and our own opinions and our own ideas and our own, you know, recommended algorithmic search engine results and stuff. And we all, we, we so, even though we think we're connecting with other people, we're really just becoming more isolated. So anyway, you know, if you can only do something online, fine. But if you can connect with people in the real world and do something with other people, then, you know, I, uh, I would like to, uh, I would like to submit for your approval that that might be something that would be helpful to you. And, uh, and so I, I, I send you off into the day with, with that idea, even if it's just five minutes, you know, at the end of your day or whatever, or at the beginning of your day, just go do something for someone else. Um, and, uh, and then you're going to want that miracle. Have I, I feel like I've summoned, uh, Bill Murray from Scrooged at the end. But anyway, that's kind of the idea. And then another, another quote that I, I read that, uh, my friend and trainer for many years, who is Tom J. Dieters on Instagram, uh, posted that, and he has a podcast called the Pro You Podcast. I've done it before. I'm, I'm sure I'll do it again. Uh, he's just a great motivational guy and a, and a real sweetheart. And he posted this on his Instagram. Um, and it's uh, it says, the Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he never is going to die and then dies having never really lived. Oh, damn. Oh, yeah, that one, that one hit. That one, that one dropped hard. A, 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 a truth bomb because it's true. You know, you pursue all these things and you sacrifice your health because you, you just push everything else out of the way in pursuit of this goal. And then when you have that goal, then you try to get your health back. What have I done? Why have I not? And then you're stressing about future stuff and you're not living in the present. I know we say it all the time on the podcast, going back since the beginning, enjoy your burrito, enjoy the present. But, um, but it is really important to stop, even if just for your health, your physical health and your mental health, uh, to live in the present and not always be tormented by the past or anxious and stressed about the future. Uh, steal those moments when you can to just live in the present. And the more you can do it, the more you can make it a habit, the more comfortable it will become. Because we just create these patterns and habits for ourselves that get comfortable, even if they're not fully healthy for us. And, uh, you know, and then you can actually live in the present and enjoy today. So even if just at the end of this podcast, just stop, take a deep breath. Notice what's around you, even if you're kind of saying out loud the things that are around you, you know, you've, you've, hopefully you've put your car in park if you're in your car, you know, you're sitting in your car, you go, oh, there's a, you know, there's a very green tree out there, there's a gray lamppost right there, there's a, you know, a, a terrier walking by, a mailbox, you know, just notice things that are in your present, take a breath and just let everything else go, all of your future, all of the past worries and stresses and, and anxieties, and just and just kind of be in the present. Even if it's just for a minute, just do that. And then continue on with your day. And uh, I hope these are helpful in any way. If not, then I'm just rambling to myself in the ID10T studio. Here we go. Uh, thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. Uh, and I will see you in your ears real soon. If you're going to be in New York... Uh, October 3rd, 4th, and 5th, uh, I'll be at Caroline's there, and then I'll be at the Irvine Improv later in November. So that's that. Check out ID10T.com. Have a wonderful day, evening, morning, middle of the night, whenever. Uh, all right, take care. 
ID 10 T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.